0: there's a person behind the bottle. I think when we see something on the shelf or we see something on the back bar, you kind of think that that's just a a really big brand. So now knowing that there are people behind these brands, I think that's the next step for me.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. Today's guest is Melissa Katrinsik, president and CEO of Durham Distillery, home of Conniption Gin and the Corpse Reviver Cocktail Bar and Lounge. We've had the privilege of working with Melissa and Durham Distillery at Hutchison for many years. And so I was thrilled when she decided to come on the show, especially here we are at the start of Women's History Month. You know, Melissa's actually done something pretty historic herself. She's the first female distiller inducted into the Gin Guild. But before all of this got started, Melissa was in advertising, trying to figure out the next chapter of her career, when she and her husband Lee had a life-altering conversation.
0: So whenever we would travel, we would try new gins, gin cocktails, or we would go and buy gin at the retailer and see what was on shelf. I was facing a layoff, okay. so this was 2013, and my background is digital marketing and marketing. So at that stage of my career, I had close to 20 years in advertising agencies, corporate, consumer products, goods. I was Uh, at Burt's Bees for a bit of a time. And I just, I thought there would be some sort of passion project in my future. But again, I didn't think it was gonna be gin. And it was coming home from uh, a weekend away in Savannah, Georgia. I just looked over at Lee and I said, why don't we make gin? And he started laughing.
1: But Melissa was very serious. And I get the impression that once she sets her mind to something, it's gonna happen. She had a heads up that her layoff was coming in about nine months, which meant she had some time to get her business case together. Everyone in her company knew she was working on this, and actually, her boss became one of Durham Distiller's first investors. Lee is a pharmaceutical chemist, so in addition to the business case, they started working on making a gin that would stand out. Stay tuned to the end of the show where Melissa explains the gin distilling process. But for now, just imagine your friendly neighborhood scientists using a mixture of lab equipment and traditional methods to concoct the perfect modern gin
0: we wanted to look at what modern science could really bring to the table being in research triangle park area having lee's background we settled on what's called rotary evaporation cold vacuum distillation okay these are machines you would see in pharmaceutical laboratories and so we understood that we could with those type of machines create beautiful really fresh flavor vodkas mm-hmm. So that's the cucumber honeysuckle flower for us, and now we do. um, We always did fig for navy strength, and now we have lemon and orange individually for conniption Kinship, which just launched. Yeah, but really lovely flavors you wouldn't get from an extract.
1: Well, I mean, I'll take a break here to say, if you haven't already, go for a tour over at Durham Distillery because you you know you talk about having it look like you know something you would see in a science lab. Yes, Mm -hmm. and you know a distillery. It's true. It's like unlike anything I would ever expect to see <laughs> yeah. in any, any sort but of It's distillery. not going to be
0: anything like you'd see on the bourbon trail. No, no. no. It's it's
1: fascinating. And, and just the amount that you can learn while doing it. I mm-hmm. encourage anybody to go out and, and check it out. But so in these early stages, I mean, because now you have like the beautiful copper. Is it a still?
0: It is a still. So you yeah, have that beautiful still copper. From still, from but Germany. like, yeah. obviously,
1: that's not first few days of, of, of oh, no. putting yeah, this product. As, are back you, to like are the... you on like a pot on the stove? or
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, not quite that bad. okay. No, Lee was able to do the individual infusions at the house, but it was then the blending. the The blending to create the gin formulas took us about a year. Okay, it was a lot of tweaking at that stage, but then the beauty of, again about having a chemist break this down is he could build it back up. So his uh, everything that he'd done was at certain concentration levels. So okay. he had weighed out everything he knew, length of time. So amazingly to the point when we did have the stills we were doing our first production run he hit the nail on the head the first run
1: that's because that was gonna be my next question how do you hit it right the first time and then be like oh i know can i even get back to the same flavor you always
0: think like this is going to take some tweaking like we didn't really actually figure out what we were going to do right out of the gate nope no we had it which is pretty impressive i think it's a lot of the care that had gone into before we were ready to distill it right you know Hundred gallons at a time.
1: So <laughs> <right>. So <laughs> then after you kind of landed on what you wanted to do, I mean, did you how did you go out and kind of sample it or test it with other people or did you just say Family and Friends, okay. yeah. Yeah. Again, the neighbors. Well,
0: right, and that you can't test well, the sampling we could test with family and friends. Okay. The production run, once you get to production, you're in production. Like that's when you're all the licenses and all the permits are which was quite the process, too. I don't know if you I remember was gonna say, all
1: that. that that's going to be my next question, because now <laughs> you've got a product, but you're selling liquor in a state like North Carolina.
0: Oh, I don't even have the product yet. I think that's the thing about getting to the point of being a permitted distillery in the country. So while we were doing the, all the formula development, right, because we, we have to do everything just, like I said, the infusion style, which mm-hmm. is legal and you can do it at your house. But the federal permits took at that point 9 months wow but you can't even apply for your federal permit until you have your still on order right because you need the serial number for your still okay for the federal government you needed to have your lease or your building you had to have everything from the architect so all of that all that all that had to be sent along with how we were going to pay for it right? Because right. the federal government wants to make sure you're <laughs> actually going to then be able to pay your taxes. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it was, there's a lot in setting up a business that is a distillery that I don't think anyone anticipates until they have gotten too far down the road. They're just, they're in it. They got to do it.
1: And, and how, I was going to say, how do you, how did you learn that? It was Did you have other distillers that you could talk to about this? Did you kind of just yes. look it up each time? Oh, you? for sure. Yeah.
0: I, I'd say that there were a couple of distillers in North Carolina that had were very generous with their time, and including uh, Rim Vigalis of Brothers Vigalis, he he was fantastic and kind of like not only with the federal, but giving us some ideas of what was going to happen in North Carolina. Okay. So we had that side of it, but then that course that we did that Lee and I both took in Chicago mm-hmm. had given us the structure of what was all going to have to be done too. Okay. Um, and then we did uh, also employ a consultant at that at that stage. Because you don't want to get to submitting everything for the federal government and having something not
1: be right. Right. Because then your nine months can go up to. Well, I was going to say, if you're already talking nine months in delay. Yeah. Anything that kind of sets that back, you're already.
0: That's just. right. That's right. And I'd say we were in the heyday of distilled spirits plants being submitted to the federal government. That's the DSP permit. I don't think that that turnaround time is anything like it now or what it was. Yeah. Um, you know, because when we started the distillery, there were only a couple hundred in the country. But then it immediately, like we were on the hockey stick as, a, as an industry.
1: So, how many would you do you know now? How many uh, I, I now? know.
0: I think the American Craft Spirits Association said that there's over 1,100 wow. at this stage. Yeah, that really and that's not even that's right. not even remotely what it was pre-prohibition.
1: Goodness. So, during this stage, kind of as you you're building that product, you going through all the licenses and all the things. Uh-huh. That you, what were some of the other challenges that you faced? <laughs> Just kind of getting up <laughs> so to speed. Here's
0: the leading question, you and I and our work together. Trademarks. Yes. There it is.
1: Well, Thank you. so tell me a little bit about oh, that. Oh,
0: what a horrendous process. So I'd say there were, there were different levels of trademarks that we felt we knew we wanted, right? Mm-hmm. We knew we wanted Durham Distillery. <laughs> and then we landed on, I think it was three or four for what ended up being conniption. Mm-hmm. And then we had two or three for the liqueurs. Yep. Oh, this is taking me back. And none of them, <laughs> none of them were straightforward.
1: No, they were not. You none know, of I, them I, I have to say, I was saying before we started <laughs> recording, but you had had the worst luck. <laughs> the worst. Anybody I worked with uh, on their trademark <laughs> applications because people seem to come out of the woodwork and be like, oh. my oh, God, like we, that
0: one, like burgers and fries. I we own, like we own like a hamburger Austin, stand Texas. in Texas
1: <laughs> and somehow your, my hamburger stand is going to be interfered by your gym <laughs> in Durham. <laughs>
0: that was, what was that? That was the darn fine or something you like know, that before I, we decided on the that, damn
1: fine. That was just That absurd. was insane.
0: That was insane. Yeah. So I, I don't think we had any understanding of how trademarks were being held mm-hmm. by the big conglomerates until we really went through this. I don't know if you remember, but beer being in its completely own yeah. and then wine and spirits being in there, in there together, so many of the short list of names we wanted— we're already claimed.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of folks don't recognize. Either Either as they're starting restaurants, as right. they're starting distilleries, as they're starting breweries, the way at least the U.S. Trademark Office looks at it. That's right. All of those goods are considered related. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a hamburger stand in Texas, <laughs> they at least think that they have the right to make an objection to, to somebody who's providing. who wants to
0: ride and create a, mo- uh, a liqueur it, in it, Durham, North It is, North and it, it's
1: really, it's really kind of, I think it's... Sh- Downside of of the U.S. trademark system, but I think it's getting a little bit yeah. again crowded because there are so oh, many marks crowded. that are out there. Yes, and as everybody tries to name their next beer variety or their next, you know, well, I variety, think I think
0: a lot of them are skirting it. Yeah, like, I don't even think they're filing now.
1: No, I, I think a lot of people choose not to because right. it's just again, And then it's they're too just hard. waiting to
0: see if someone comes after them, mm-hmm. which is happening. Yeah, I think the the whole thing about entrepreneurship being you have to be ready to um, get knocked down every day and get back up. I'm amazed how often I got back up after I got an email from you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, okay, on to the next one. I'll, what are we doing now? Well, I was gonna say well, we you have always so have many many such a great cooperating sp- agreements for what we've done.
1: You all always had such a great spirit about it. <laughs> it's like okay, we'll <laughs> get past right. this. So we're gonna do this.
0: Yeah, but I, I I don't think it could have worked out any better. I think conniption, oh, such it was game. always my number one and. You know, I that that beer is not even around anymore. Do nope. you know? I was like, it's just great. Yeah. Cause that was the one out of Conniption Fit IPA. Were they Ohio, Michigan, I'm somewhere? Michigan, yeah. If I recall. Yep. So that's
1: again, last one I know, standing. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from kind of trademarks and those legal hurdles, were there yeah. other kind of challenges that you were facing as just setting up the business? Yeah. Well,
0: I I'd say we had always been very intentional about doing it from the bootstraps. We did have to get an SBA loan, and that was that was horrendous. I and there's no way to think of otherwise about that process. I think if um, you know just to kind of put it in in context for somebody, when you go in with a fully buttoned up business case to get an SBA loan that was not even a large one. I mean, it was less than three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and to have a bank say that, well, you know what, this is the best business case I've ever seen, but no, we're not going to fund oh, alcohol. Geez. And I'm like, that's not. Wait, you're the federal government's underwriting? No. Nope. So I had a couple of banks that even were just right, right out of the gate, saying that no, no to alcohol. Huh. And I will say, I did have a couple that definitely talked down to me because I was a woman starting a business, and Lee didn't come to these meetings. Right, he still had a full time job, and and I was always intending to run this business. Right. So yeah, there's some PTSD from that situation too. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm the The SBA loan took way too long Mm -hmm. as well. It took over six months to even go through the process. I don't know that that's usual. But again, when you're talking with something for the federal government that's less than half a million dollars, that should never have been.
1: Right. Right? Shouldn't even have been an afterthought.
0: No. So I'd say funding. Funding, I was really lucky that we were able to self-fund a lot. And then we had, like I said, a couple of initial investors in the group that really— believed in us
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we were just very smart about what we spent our money on
1: yeah you got to be cautious don't oh. you?
0: <laughs> yeah the, the way that we said it is that if something really hit the fan and we would have to we knew we couldn't go any further or we just had to fold in we needed to be able to number one sleep at night mm-hmm. like that we couldn't have so much risk out there that we were going to bankrupt ourselves right i think at the time the boys you know our boys i think when we started the company were two and
1: six. Mm. so fifteen and twelve. Little added pressure to that? Yeah, as well. no, not
0: at all. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm really happy that we always felt like, okay, this is not something that's going to hurt us if it just doesn't go well. Well,
1: that's good. And
0: yeah. And I don't think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that think that way. Yeah. Not 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 in distilling. Like there's the the uh, joke about being distillers right now is you know how do you make a ten million dollars in distilling you start with twenty.
1: <laughs> I like and it. Yeah,
0: and I I gotta say, I mean, we've seen we have definitely seen some distilleries that that put it all in. Right. And they're either on their last legs or they're just not around.
1: And, and what do you attribute to that? Kind of what are, what. Are,
0: <gasps> there's so many layers of. You know, it could it e- could easily be anything from not choosing the right location mm-hmm. or that you're not having a, a brand that's going to have that recall. Um, but honestly, at the time, it was so many, at least in the Southeast, wanted to do whiskey. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that you can really have revenue generation is to create vodka. You're unaged. You'd have your vodka or your gin, something that could get on market right away. Right. So a lot of these distilleries, when they started with whiskey and they had their unaged products that they were getting into market, they weren't putting the same care into the unaged products. Okay.
1: So just right? put something out there. Put
0: something out there. Let's get some money coming in. And whatever you put out there is what you're going to get your first initial reaction and reputation on. Right. Not the whiskey that's aging in barrels for the next two, three years. That's fascinating. Or
1: six. Right.
0: And it's dilution of focus. hmm We knew when we started that we were going to be a gin distillery. And there are max 12 gin-focused distilleries in this country. Interesting. There are a lot of people who make gin. Right. And I'm not going to take anything away from them. But gin-focused distilleries? No. Interesting. And and it's it's a tough category. Very tough category.
1: Tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot of misconceptions about what gin is, Mm -hmm. right? So there's an educational component that we— wholly underestimated. Okay. So we were at the time when we started our tasting room and launched it in 2015, that we could only offer you a neat pour of our spirits. There could be no mixers available. There were no cocktails available. So Lee and I really worked just tirelessly to make sure that this could be your first instance of what we call a sipping gin. Okay. Something that you didn't feel like, oh my God, I really have to have that mixer in order to, to digest it and get it down. So I think we succeeded on that. But I, I think secondarily with gin is that there is a misunderstanding of what it is versus all the other unaged spirits. I hear often, the we mentioned a little bit before we started this, that there are people who say they've had a bad gin experience. Mm-hmm. So they hone in on that. They also say, well, I, I really I only drink vodka, which I'm going to get to in a second. And then the ones that just say that, Gin makes them crazy. Now, I will. There is no hallucinogenic, nothing <laughs> in gin that would ever give you that. Right. And gin does not have allergens except for one. Uh, and we don't have it in our So, juniper, you can't be allergic to juniper. Anyway, I, I'd say in the Southeast, the biggest thing for us has been the gin versus vodka. Okay. I don't know why, but I, I if you attribute it and you kind of look at the history being a marketer, In the 1960s, Smirnoff Vodka decided to go after the martini. Okay. Now, martinis before this were always gin. Hmm. Like, if you were to go up to a bar and order a martini, they would never have assumed you wanted vodka.
1: Hmm.
0: It was always just going to be gin. Right. And so this market, and marketers are great, they decided to go after the martini. And at the same time, that bond decided to come out. And so everybody really started to say, okay, well, martinis can be made with vodka.
1: Right. So was the bond an actual marketing ploy, or was I? That
0: I don't remember if Ian Fleming wrote that in or not, or that get, went into the script. I, I haven't. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Uh, and it's interesting enough where he wrote that is Duke's Bar in London, which is only gin. So yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, you know, I, Lee and I have been there. I have no. I have no idea. But uh, gin and vodka are siblings. So the only thing that makes a gin a gin is the juniper berry. If I take it out, it's vodka. It's
1: flavored vodka. I was going to say, you said gin's like flavored vodka, right? It is flavored vodka. There you go.
0: It is, yep. It's just the federal government, as soon as the juniper berry hits it in any way, shape, or form, it is a gin. <laughs> Good to know. And so I think that's why. And and, 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 it's, and it's figuring out how to allow people to try gin without that preconceived notion. Right. And that that has taken a lot more of our effort than we ever thought.
1: That's interesting. And, and also, like, yeah, once they do try it. Because I've seen it on, mm-hmm. the, on the tours that I've been on. It's like, oh, once yeah. they do try it, it's oh, oh, amazing. It. Yes. yes. So yes. Ha- how do you get that person to get that first taste? Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. And trial process.
0: happens in bars and restaurants. If it's not at the distillery, it'll be in bars and restaurants. And that's what we're seeing as our expansion into multiple markets now. So when COVID shut down bars and restaurants, gin as a category also suffered. Oh, really? Interesting. Because
1: mm-hmm. then people aren't just, they're not trying it.
0: They're not trying new brands. Okay. Right. So if they're being introduced to a new brand, it's going to be at the what we call the on premise channel.
1: Okay. And that's so you've had somebody at a bar who likes your product and mm-hmm. then starts. Or it's gotten on menu. Okay. Yeah.
0: Or we're a beautiful bottle. So you can yeah, see it on it the back a bar.
1: Bottle.
0: Yep. Anything to like entice you before mm-hmm. you've tried it. Uh, and then it's a really it's a great, it's a sticky name, right? Yeah. So as marketers, we want to make sure that anything has a quick recall. Conniption has a very quick recall.
1: For sure. Yeah. So tell, I mean, I think we're getting into a little bit, but how do you go about brand new gin? How do you get this on shelves? <laughs> how do you get in front of bartenders who are going to taste this? I mean, what? Oh, what's it's the, just a, do do yeah.
0: I mean, putting the work in every day. Uh, uh, North but then you Carolina just like ABC. Walking around with
1: a bottle and be like, hey. Oh no,
0: right. So I had to meet with every individual or where we were targeting. The the there are over 160 boards in North Carolina ABC boards. Wow. Uh, they all have their own general manager. In order to get a listing with the state, you go to the ABC commission. That's great. You can get listed as a North Carolina product, but it doesn't mean that you're getting into all of those ABC stores you want to get into. So you have to go and pitch your product to every general manager across the state or wherever you you really want to focus. So I was on the road a lot.
1: I bet. So there's not like a, they don't all come together one place, so people can come to you? Nope. That's they all... do that in
0: Virginia. They do not do that in North Carolina. Okay. We still have, I think, uh, our broker looked at it maybe this time last year. I don't think conniption is sold in 40% of the boards in this state. And it is the best-selling craft gin in this state.
1: So what, I mean, is it a personal choice? Or how do how do people decide then at that point to put it in the... <laughs>
0: Does the general manager decide? Well, at the time, they they saw us as a really big risk. Yeah, we still even with Kinship launching in August of last year, right? So we are now internationally known gin, and I still had some. I still do have some boards that have not taken Kinship Kinship onto their shelves. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, I'm. I think that's part of the reason. I think we're really happy we started when we did and got into distribution in other states.
1: So is North Carolina a particularly tough state? Yes. Okay.
0: It has gone a long way since 2015. So I think the fact that we can have a cocktail bar, we can do the cocktails at the distillery, we can sell multiple bottles at the distillery now, and it right. was not the one person, one bottle per person for per rolling 12 months.
1: Yeah, you participated first, in that, didn't you? Because oh, you, you lobbied yep, for the that. The
0: lobbying. Yep. Uh, I'd say North Carolina, it is a welcome environment for most distillers now. Okay. Because they've got a taproom model they can follow after the breweries. They do not have to get into distribution to make the numbers work. Okay. But North Carolina is a control state, just has rules of the road that any new distiller would it will take some time. Mm-hmm. Just and but that's why we have a distillers association too.
1: So and then once you've kind of I don't want to say conquered a market, but you've launched in North Carolina, how do you start moving into new you, markets. Yeah. Yeah,
0: well, and and it's it's so different now than it was in 2017 when we got into our first expansion market. It was a lot more amenable for distributors to look at craft brands. Okay. They don't really look at craft brands the same way post-COVID because what what happened as an industry is we were all enjoying cocktails at home, but um, nine out of 10 went back to comfort brands. Mm-hmm. So they went back to the big brands. They went back to the ones, even if they were craft, they were craft they knew. Okay. Um, and the distributors uh, then consolidated their portfolios to the ones that would sell. So a lot of craft brands that had gotten distribution got kicked out. Interesting. Once, yeah. Yeah. So you, we're still at a time when a lot of distributors won't even talk to new brands. We were very lucky that. Our expansion market in 2017 and 2018 led also to us getting into what's called the expansion contract with Southern Glazers. Southern Glazers is only one of two big distribution houses in the country, right? It's Southern Glazers R and D C. And there's there's a little bit more to that, but um, the fact that they had seen our success in South, in, sorry, in North Carolina, but then they were looking at us in, in some other states, that helped and then we had gotten with a couple of other distributors who their franchise market there are so many layers of legalities I to to di- spirits distribution uh, and it's all post prohibition okay um, so every state's different Yep. every state
1: once you learn one state now you have to learn No another. yeah yeah you <laughs> got
0: to learn it all from scratch again but finding those partners was easier back then but I, I you know i i think it's been sort of a a learning process even with partners that we've had since 2017. Okay, nothing's nothing's ever easy. No.
1: Well, maybe <laughs> t- talk about that because it's not easy. But what were some of the mistakes that you think you made in those first early years? And
0: that's a great question. Oh, I've made a lot of them. <laughs> I
1: think it, that's the reality of any any endeavor, but especially <laughs> I, for entrepreneurs, right? But I
0: don't hold on to them. So I think that's the nice thing is I might have made plenty of mistakes, but none of them were so big. Mm-hmm. Like I was able so I I I'm very happy that the trademark one wasn't huge, right? So yeah. we were able to move forward. Um the funding wasn't huge. I'd say probably if I was to look back at 2016, 2017 first couple years of us being in market, I think I was too quick to look for other markets instead of building the home market more efficiently. Okay. Like I I would have I think gotten to be much stronger in Charlotte out of the gate. We still struggle with Charlotte, hmm. uh, so I would have spent a lot more time in home market because I think that's that's what sustains you. Right. And we didn't realize that until COVID, right? So we still grew a couple of percentage points in twenty twenty, but because of the triangle, right? It all fell on this local community to say that Durham Distillery wasn't going to go under. Mm-hmm. It was that was amazing how they showed up.
1: Well, and I think I want to get to that in a second, but I do want to ask you before we get to kind of the COVID period, Yeah, y- you know, your, your involvement with Constellation Brands. How did that yes. come about? And Yeah. Um, what has that meant for Durham Distillery?
0: Yeah, I, it, it meant much more than I realized it was going to mean since the, the deal closed in August of 2019. So Constellation reached out, and I like to say that um, what ha- this is very common in spirits brands. I don't know as much if I could say the same, anymore about beer or wine. But in Spirits, what you found found at the time was that you have the big conglomerates Mm -hmm. looking at how do they improve their portfolio or how do they identify white space in their portfolio with what they were seeing in the craft market. So Diageo has Distill Ventures. Uh, Pernod, I can't remember the name of theirs. But what they call them is the Ventures Arms. So Constellation Ventures reached out uh, not soon after we had gotten double gold for the Navy Strength Gen at San Francisco in 2017. So to put it in perspective, a double gold is where you everybody at the table, all of the judges have agreed that it's a gold right off the bat. Wow! Then they all have to get together, and it's not only... To get to a double gold, what it meant at the time, and I think it still does, is that all of the judges, regardless if they were assigned to gin, so for San Francisco, it's over probably at that point 13 judge captains. They all have to try your product and agree that it's a double gold product. So it's very rare to get a double gold in gin for a Navy strength. Mm -hmm. So they already knew that a Navy strength gin to get double gold was meant we were doing a lot right. Uh, so they reached out after that and they dated. They just, they would, they would show up, they'd send them some emails and they'd be like, and of course they asked for the NDA right away. At that point it was, I'm not going to tell them no. Right. So they started reaching out to us, like I said, right, right after that in 2017. And I'll never forget that they, they came out of the woodwork asking for financial projections and it would be anywhere from three to five year financial projections you know, They wanted to take a look at the books to see how our profit margins were still holding up, what we were doing in terms of our cash flow. And then it was 2018, they had reached back out while I was about ready to travel with Lee to London to get inducted into the Gin Guild. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I'm not kidding you, I had to finalize all of the financial forecasts in the hotel room in London. Oh,
1: goodness. <laughs> and send
0: it over to them. But I think that that was kismet. I think that that was how it was supposed to all shake out. And so it, we didn't get the green light that we were moving into due diligence and that we were going to be an investment until um, spring of 2019. Okay. And then that took, and you, you, know, you guys all were in it with us, and that took another 90 days, mm-hmm. I think, until the deal closed in yeah. August. So what it's meant is that we had access – to surviving during COVID that, I don't know how it would have gone. Yeah, You know, I'm really, I, it, it, we had, we were able to keep our entire team during the process. So my commitment to my team at that time when everything shut down is, my goal is to make sure that you are all still employed on the other side of this. Wow. So we did do that. I felt very good about it. What we all kind of rallied aga- around was the curbside, the cocktail kits. We did the hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. We were on the national committee to making sure that other distilleries were doing it right and following the FDA guidelines. And, you know, it was, following the FDA guidelines, that was a really big part of, of making sure that there was success there even without doing the growth that we had hoped.
1: Right. Because people were still there at the end of the at the end of the day, right? Because you still had a business.
0: Well, right, and I'd say like a, a strategic partner like Constellation. When it hits the fan, you know whether or not you've got the right partner. And I knew within a week of everything hitting the fan, we had the right partner. They were on the phone with me probably every other day. I they are our colleagues. That's amazing. We are, yeah. They they have full intentionality of doing the right thing, um, and getting you through tough times yeah. and giving you access and and they've they've helped us grow monumentally in the last twenty four months.
1: That's that's great. I yeah. mean and coming back kind of back to the pandemic side of things, I, it seems like you did a lot of very creative things to, <laughs> you have to. again to just stay alive and to continue to yeah. grow kind mm-hmm. of and you talked about the triangle support for that. Yes. But talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Meaning Well I mean I think coming up with creative ways to continue to push product out there, but then also I've seen you talk about other places about that community support of people coming together to, to support the distillery.
0: I think the first couple of months when we were focused on hand sanitizer and and getting that out, um, we were working with the North Carolina emergency management at the time too. So they had contracted with us for a certain amount, uh, which was helpful. So, we could kind of breathe a little bit while production was almost essentially halted right. uh, or was halted in, in favor of hand sanitizer. We felt very strongly as soon as it started that we wanted to be on the forefront of coming up with a solution, right? Cause you didn't know what you were facing. And I think Lee and I having pharmaceutical backgrounds, we knew even more mm-hmm. that this was, this was going to be a critical moment in time. So, even before the hand sanitizer, we came up with a sanitizing spray. We have access to 95% alcohol that kills absolutely everything. The general public has no access to that at all, right? right? So we had worked to try and get emergency approval, which we did get from ABC and from North Carolina, to at least get out and we donated it all. We donated all to all of our um, restaurant friends. Mm. So restaurant and bars would come and pick up the sanitizing spray Because they knew that after they'd cleaned something, they could actually spray down surfaces and leave it and ensure anything was... Because, again, we didn't know if it was airborne or... Right. Didn't know anything at that time. We did not know anything. So we had started with that, and then we had moved into the hand sanitizer with the emergency management. But we still made an additional 50% for donation. Okay. So we were uh, working with emergency response As far south, I think it was towards Stanford and Moore County and all the way over towards New Hanover, they came. So fire, Mm -hmm. ambulance, they would EMS, they would come and pick up hand sanitizer from us. Right. And we we donated a lot at that. I think as a team, once we started to feel like we had a control. Or something we could do as a team to mm-hmm. to feel in control. You're not in control, but you we felt like you we had we were doing a service that not anyone really could do. Right. Um, so we were really excited about rallying together around that. Uh, and then once that really had taken, and hand sanitizer was now becoming more readily available, we could stop that production and then hone in on what we could do to again, bring joy to people's lives. And that's what gin is. Gin is not a back bar, dark, you know, pipe or smoking, whatever. It is not <laughs> that kind of of spirit. It's not. It is It is peop- It is family and friends getting together. And so we said, okay, well, how are we going to do this? Yeah. And people were already exhausted by the Zoom cocktail classes. And we're like, okay, well, we're going to do curbside cocktail kits. Yes. Because we could not do it with alcohol. That's the other thing. Like the and the bars couldn't do it anything at that point, which was frustrating for them. But we were like, well, we can't mix the two, but we're going to do it in volume formats where you're going to have everything ready to go. Yep. You know exactly what you need to do. You can buy the gin from us, buy the cocktail kit, we're going to drop it into your car and you're going to go. Yeah. And that's what saved us, like I said. i was going to say it seems so is
1: genius. It was, like, it I was love it.
0: Yeah, we had no idea. when, we, and, and this is the kind of thing, I mean, we were all just spitballing as a team. Like, right. okay, well, what are we going to try? And if this doesn't work, we're going to try something else. And the cocktail kits just took off. And I think we launched them right before Mother's Day mm-hmm. in 2020. And that May of 2020 was better than our my May of 2019. That's amazing. And it was just because everybody was coming out to support us and also because they wanted to just (laughs) be able to have (laughs) a cocktail they would have had at the bar, at the house, and just relax themselves. That's amazing. But, I mean, it
1: it was such a, I don't know, it was great to see for your business, but it's also, like you said, bring joy to people who were in a very difficult situation at that point.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know we've we brought them back occasionally. Like one of the most popular one um, was a Festivus mm-hmm. punch, which we make every uh, holiday time period because people just it's fun. That's right. Great. Yeah. And all you have to do is put it in a punch bowl with some gin and some other things, <laughs> and you're good to go. And so we bring that back every year, and that sells out. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So I mean, it seems like conniption Gin is taking you all over the world, on, in some respects. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you get like fantastic receptions wherever you go. Uh, tell me about about that experience of like, I don't know, getting to, yeah. to take what you love and kind of getting such a warm reception for it. Just,
0: I wish I don't spend enough time thinking about the wins. Mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I think that's an entrepreneur always is like, what's next? What do I have to do next? Right. Yes. The last six months have finally been where I'm seeing the compound growth that we were hoping for in 2020. And it's very exciting. I think Connection Kinship, Gin has re-energized the whole portfolio. Okay. And it's re-energized distributors. It has, at this stage of its growth, in like New York City, it has over two dozen menus in New York. Wow. Yeah. And it just won um, a two-outlet, which I can't believe I'm saying barbecue, but I am. I'm saying barbecue, in uh, Brooklyn and Harlem. And it's going to be on menu all summer. Wow! And those are the kind of things that it's—they all add up, right? And I was in Florida last week for a very big meeting. So fingers crossed on that, because you have any idea where I'm going with that one, mid Florida Orlando area. So who knows? Who knows? That could take us to the next level very quickly, and then, and hopefully I will stay married because Lee will be working all the time. And I have a feeling I'm going to be ha- having to do a lot more uh, still work myself and right. get back into the trenches with him.
1: Nice problems to uh, have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's everything we've prepared for. Right. But yeah, I think to your question of how does it, you know, how does it feel? I, I would say being only, only 1% of distillery owners in this country are women. And as we are starting to think about March and Women's History Month, To identify that only 1% are, like I said, distillery owners, but then that's not much better when you think about women distillers. Mm -hmm. And then to load in that the majority of the women, majority on Durham Distillery team are women. And we are unique in a way that I'd hoped to always be when Mm -hmm. we started this, but to see this pay off and have women who feel that they are in an environment that welcomes their success right. and encourages it and promotes it, That that's the more the win for me than the gin. And I'm sure Lee would answer differently, and he should, because you know his passion has, has obviously been in the distillation, where mine has too. I, I am distiller. I'm not just president and CEO. Right. I am, I'm, I ran those stills by myself for the first four years. That's where I'm hoping to take the next step Mm -hmm. for Durham Distillery is to get recognized and to do more speaking opportunities of women in manufacturing and women in spirits.
1: Well, I mean, because I don't think we've spoken on it yet, but you're the only U.S. female distiller. Is that right? In the Gin Guild?
0: Yes. The first and only U.S. female gin distiller inducted in the Gin Guild, and it's a nomination process. Um, you can't just apply. Okay. And I was nominated, Lee and I were both nominated by um, David Smith, who runs significant amount of gin competitions worldwide. Um, he's also pinged me to be a gin judge for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. So there are very few that do gin judging. Uh, and then um, Ann Brock, who is master distiller of Bombay Sapphire Gin.
1: So, I mean, I guess along those lines, what, is, what does that mean to you? And what has been your experience?
0: You raised a really good question. What, is it, what does it mean to me to be the only one? I, I feel a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. I also feel it is a bit sad. I, I, I will admit that. Um, but I've, it brings about so much opportunity to the gin distillers in this country to recognize that we're coming up and starting to compete on an international level.
1: Right.
0: Uh, gin in the U.S. has often gotten a backseat, but you know, Conniption Navy Strength Gin just won its fifth year mm-hmm. from the World Gin Awards of the best Navy Strength Gin distilled in this country. That's amazing to that me. That is
1: amazing. That,
0: though, so if I think about what it means to me, I think it's the recognition that we're bringing a quality of gin to the U.S. consumer that they are embracing and not feeling intimidated by. It's a very approachable gin. And then that there's a person behind the bottle, Mm -hmm. right? I think when we see something on the shelf or we see something on the back bar, we really kind of, as and I do it too, you kind of think that that's just a a really big brand, right? right? Because you don't know all of the things that have gone into it. So now knowing that there are people behind these brands, I think that's the next step for me. Okay. I don't know how it's going to play out, but that's what I've been thinking lately is I'm ready for the fostering and the mentoring and the opportunities for others.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a great segue because, you know, we are the Founders Shares podcast. (laughs) And so I always like to ask all of our guests, you know, if you had someone here who was thinking about starting a business or thinking about starting a distillery specifically or whatever Uh it is, yeah. What's that advice that you'd want to share with them?
0: Resiliency. Yeah. It's um and and finding a network of people that want you to succeed. Mm. Not just your family and friends, but network of of colleagues. You know, there there was always a, a time where I knew on Several occasions that if I got stuck, right, it was not just about good partners like yourselves, but it was it was about who who would help me think through this and not have it be a problem, but be an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that sounds really corny, right? We all talk about pivoting and opportunity and costs and all that other stuff as founders, but it really is building a community around you that is intent on your success.
1: That's great. I, I think it's it's great advice and um, I'm excited for what the next, you know, Thank many you. years, uh, many years store I know. for D- Durham Distillery. But, um, <laughs>
0: I can't believe we're celebrating 10 years. That's awesome. 10 but, years of being incorporated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not, you know, and then I don't know. I see, I feel like I haven't aged 10 years, but I, I really yeah. have.
1: <laughs> that, that's, that's great. So, I mean, if people are interested in learning more, getting in touch with you, what's the best way they can connect with you?
0: Oh, absolutely! So connecting through uh, the website is always good. Um, you know, there's uh, email opportunity on contact us, but of course, LinkedIn. Yeah. I mean, this is th- that's how you easily can reach out to me is, is LinkedIn.
1: And just come out to the Corpse Revivor.
0: Wow, right now you have to come have a cocktail. I think mm-hmm.
1: that's it. I think we everybody <laughs> just needs to go out and have a cocktail and just we say didn't even hi. We talk
0: about Corpse Revivor. Yeah, yeah, the cocktail bar. It's it's, we it's the I mean, happening place. It's and it's a phenomenal team. They they make some. Really great cocktails, not just gin. Wow. There's this assumption that it's only a gin bar note. You can get everything there.
1: But you really should try the gin. Well, the gin's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Melissa. Thank
0: you. I appreciate it.
1: That was Melissa Katrinsik. You can find out more at durhamdistillery.com. If you want to learn more about Durham Distillery, about their processes, I definitely recommend scheduling a tour and having a tour of the distillery. It's a fascinating, fascinating evening. And if you get a chance, be sure to stop and have a drink at the Corpse Reviver. It's such a fun spot, and you'll appreciate the gin so much more. And as I mentioned at the top, stay tuned for Melissa to give a more in-depth insight on how gin is made. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W dot com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares podcast.
0: So gin always starts with a vodka. Mm -hmm right? So that vodka needs to be 95% alcohol. So it's not a vodka you would buy off a shelf. It's industrial. Uh, And that needs to be only 5% water. Now you can choose whatever you want in terms of the base grain that the alcohol is made from. We uh, honed in on corn as being the lead, but it does have some wheat. So, but again, everything's gluten-free in distillation. I should back up and make sure everybody knows that. But the traditional method of distillation for gin is a couple of things. You can do what's called the compound style, which is what they did during Prohibition. They took the botanicals, they steeped them, like that's your bathtub gin, where they just had the botanicals hit the liquid, and they never did anything with it, and it was straw-colored, and it was just an infusion. Right. Cold infusion. Great. We knew that was not at all what we were going to do. Your really high-end gins never are going to be compound anyway. Okay. Uh, And then there's the vapor infusion, uh, which is the one that we did decide on which means that during the distillation process when you get to the vapor phase or right, you think about boiling a double boiler on your stovetop okay you get the steam rising and when the steam rises it goes through the botanicals at that point it's never actually in the pot okay that that i really have always adored because there's complexities in the flavor after distillation that aren't achieved in the final one which is your maceration style mm. Maceration is essentially starts with that infusion again, like it's a bathtub gin, but then you redistill it, which means that you've loaded all of that into the pot and then it gets distilled and to, back to a clear spirit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that's like your tangerine. Okay. So easy to say tangerine is your maceration. Vapor is um, Hendrix or Bombay Sapphire. Okay. Just for the mainstream comparisons. When I go back to the table and you think about, Hendrix, that's cucumber and rose. Okay. On the back of the bottle, it says essences. Mm-hmm. Those are extracts.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: after distillation, they go ahead and they back add those flavors.